tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Welcome all of my beautiful survivors to the podcast today. I am so excited to share this episode with you because I feel so lucky to have gotten a chance to meet with this guest and to have them talk about their experience as a survivor, as a badass warrior in the community, And you're going to get to hear so many wonderful things about visions for the future and how community can truly help us with our recovery process and connecting to community can not only help us recover, but actually help us thrive and really work to change our culture and community as a whole um, into being a space in which rape and rape culture no longer exist. My wonderful guest today is Olivia Pepper. And Olivia is a star poet and hereditary tarot reader, a practicing mystic and ritualist, and a community organizer. And it is my personal suspicion that they might also be a super secret, awesome, superhero healer and protector for all the community. So please welcome Olivia Pepper. Well, welcome, Olivia. I'm so, so excited to do this with you. You're definitely somebody, even when I was developing this podcast, I was like, I really want to make sure I can talk to them on on this podcast and share you with the world. So I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a big honor. Yeah. Do you want, can you share a little bit about yourself uh, with everybody so they can get to know you just as well as I have? Yeah, for sure. Um, My name is Olivia Pepper, and I am uh, also sometimes known as AFA, which is the Gaelic variant of Olivia, but people can refer to me as either one. And uh, my pronouns are also versatile, so people may refer to me as they, she, or he, depending on circumstance, and some people use one set, some people use variable ones, and um, I just appreciate a little bit of flexibility there. I'm living as an uninvited guest on unceded Northern Tiwa lands in New Mexico, in Taos. And I'll be moving to uh, an area close to here in the next couple of months. And so I've been enjoying uh, this kind of shift into the autumn in this place that I have not experienced autumn before. Um, And in my practices, I am a heritage practitioner of multiple eclectic magic forms. I've been reading tarot cards since I was a child, which is something that comes down in my father's side of my family. I've also been working with herbs and stones and stars since childhood and have developed a practice as an astrologer um, over the past decade or so. I've been teaching about astrology for about three years and reading charts professionally for about that long, but I was in study for a couple of decades before diving into that realm of my life. And otherwise, I'm also an activist in many different 
areas, especially lately, I'm focused on um, food security for communities that are experiencing um, poverty and lack of access to resources. And I'm always pretty committed to sharing medicine and spiritual information in a way that is not exclusionary um, for people who, you know, maybe lack access to some of the resources that that other people who are curious about those forms might have. So I really appreciate kind of expanding my offerings to include people from a wide variety of backgrounds and experiences uh, and just in hopes of kind of creating a world that is a little bit more spiritually um, self-sustaining. Oh, that's amazing. And, and such a lovely goal to work towards of self-sustaining spirituality. Um, and in many ways, how that feeds all of us and feeds the world um, in, in so many real practical ways as well. Thank you. Yeah, it, it feels like a really important part of why I'm here at this time is to um, participate in the decentralization of spiritual practice and bringing it into some more autonomous space for people who feel comfortable working either in mixed forms or uh, intermittently sporadically, you know, kind of just finding the ways that we have to keep ourselves sane and grounded in a world that is kind of constantly trying to uproot that. Yes. Well, so to share a little bit about how I got to know you, um, I I got to know you kind of through, like I said, the six degrees, I call it the six degrees of social media, where it's like, you know, I'm following somebody who posts something that you had posted. And then I look at yours and I'm like, oh, this person's fantastic. I'm going to follow them too. Um, and, and loved all of your posts. And I highly recommend everybody follow Olivia Pepper right now, um, you know, because she has so many beautiful poetry, you know, and meme drops. Um, and just like all these beautiful tidbits that I have found a lot of solace and validation through um, in my experience. And oftentimes I'm just like, how, how does it, how do, how do they know that this is what I'm feeling right now? Somehow she's speaking right to my heart. And one of the things that I think also really called me in so nicely was how you present um, that you are also a survivor. And one of your posts that um, more recently that you had posted, it was an anniversary for you that I really liked. And there was a beautiful quote at the end of it about, you know, what you were discussing and sharing about it that I wanted to share with everybody really quick. Um, you say, but I do know what it's like to be resilient and I do know what it is like to survive. And I do know that very soon everyone will need our stories, our heavy gifts. And I was like, oh my gosh, our heavy gifts. And I felt like that was also a perfect way to describe um, this wisdom that we gained through this, this journey that were placed upon these heavy gifts and that there is something about them that is both feels really wonderful and beautiful and brutal and painful and horrible all at the same time, you know, and that, that kind of this sense of carrying something with such a weight to it. And one of the things that I, what I wanted to bring you on about was even just this name, you know, survivor that we, that we wear. And I know for me, I have definitely, I have a number of relationships with this word. Um, and one side, like I definitely, when I was going through my recovery, I could feel like there was a transition from feeling like victim 
into survivor of, you know, feeling, and that was kind of really like, I'm feeling like I am still living in a, in a horrible space right now. I'm not safe, you know, still in the shock phase of this trauma and then flipped over into, okay, I'm getting the hang of living life like this. And that felt like survivor. I also find this term to be so limiting in many ways, because I'm like, there's just, there's so much more that I did to be able to live through this than simply survive and survive feels so passive. And I have not yet met any survivor that wasn't incredibly active and powerful in their recovery. Um, And so, so I have that relationship. I like that it's, there's a name that helps us connect with the community you know, like we all know, like when we say something like I'm a survivor, like everybody knows exactly what that means. And we kind of connect with that shared understanding. And then on the other side, it's also like that, uh, that really doesn't fit for where I feel like I am right now and all, all that it took to get here. So for you, like, what does that term survivor mean to you? Mm, Thank you for this question. I have thought about this word a lot because I am almost 40 and I have been actively kind of processing and working with my own experiences since my teen years. So I've got a couple of decades of kind of like working through um, some of this. And unfortunately, as I'll talk about just a little bit uh, later, you know, I have some subsequent experiences that kind of stacked on top of one another. And so I had an identity for myself as a survivor that preceded some other traumatic events. And so it was especially complicated because it kind of felt like the way that survivor was framed, excuse me, was often like a, um, like a finality. Like it was like, well, you have survived and then that's it. You know, it's done and nothing Mm -hmm. else will ever happen. And, um, and so I felt like there was some stasis in the word that I feel a little bit uh, averse to. I do use it to describe myself uh, because of the sort of shorthand that you mentioned of being able to unify with other people who have similar experiences. But I also have to say that in my journey in this particular like thorny path that I have been walking, I have also lost some people who were trauma survivors and um, have not continued that process of survival because people have, um, you know, experienced such trauma that it has um, ended their lives through a variety of different Mm. means. And I feel like for me, some of the people that I am wanting to like speak for and kind of hold in my web of care and love and remembrance are people who maybe didn't have access to thriving and resilience in the way that I have. And so I just kind of have this feeling of not wanting to prioritize the uh, survival idea, like this kind of Darwinian, like the best Mm. make it and the others don't. That's an association that I have in my mind with that word, I guess. Um, So I think I tend to lately think of myself as someone who has experienced trauma. And that's like a thing that feels a little bit more accessible than the word survivor. I think, yeah, survivor brings up all sorts of strange things for me, like Darwinian concepts, the strange television show, and, and this idea of like, 
competition almost, Mm -hmm. which is something that I really want to kind of relax around this subject in particular, just because I think that so much of my complex trauma has been related to like comparative struggle and the way that people perceive, like people not involved in the immediate traumas kind of perceive the aftermath. Um, So yeah, I think that like struggle for survival metaphor feels a little too um, like uh, Mars oriented or like kind of like (laughs) combat oriented sometimes, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're, you're blowing up all more, more perspectives from, from me in the sense of like thinking about friends and, and people that, you know, that experienced trauma, but did not survive. And this idea of this word and and connecting with that community, separating us from, from those people. And in a way that also, especially like you're saying with this kind of competition, the Darwinian, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, (laughs) Um, this idea of that somehow there was something about people who survived that made them more effective, you know, and the emphasis being on the qualities of the survivor that made them survive versus, you know, the, everything that goes on around it. And I think that's something that I've talked about and thought a lot about before is how much burden we put on survivors and on people as a whole to be preventing sexual violence from happening to them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and just in our language and how we discuss rape culture and how it presents and stuff. And then even afterwards, survivorship is also this, this sense of this expectation, you know, that there's, there's definitely, I mean, it's very clear. The media tells us what a good survivor looks like, um, you know, the perfect survivor and looks like very few of us but also that it does then end up excluding people and their stories and what's so valuable and important about their stories and their lives that we're not looking at simply because we're kind of eliminating them from the conversation, from the community altogether. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, especially as a person, like a large part of my own uh, personal story and subsequent kind of research is around this idea of what I call rape recidivism, which is basically the mathematical breakdown that is very similar to when a person is struck by lightning, their odds of being struck by lightning again intensify. And then if they're struck by lightning a second time, the odds intensify after that. And so I know that in my adolescence and young adulthood, I experienced repeated sexual assaults and there was so much pressure because I also understood myself as a survivor at that time, but I turned a lot of the blame on myself without fully understanding the sort of um, sociological research that has been done. Granted, there are very few actual rape researchers in the world because it's not a topic that people talk about enough or are prepared to interact Mm -hmm. with. But the research broadly shows that people who experience one instance of sexual violence are likely to become victims of a second. And so I think that the the individualist kind of narrative around survivorship that I was brought into in my teens didn't serve me because it uh, I was I turned it into self-blame when there were subsequent uh, iterations of violence in my life. 
And so I think, yeah, it's just something that I'm cautious about emphasizing this kind of like personal responsibility to drag yourself through the aftermath of a difficult experience and a trauma and then like be perfect after that. I think that that's sometimes tied up in that idea of survivorship. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. I have some, some feelings about that. Mm. And I love this phrase, rape recidivism. And especially because that feels so much more neutral than when we talk about, you know, like in, in therapy, we talk about that, you know, people who have suffered trauma are at risk, higher risk of suffering trauma. And it takes the active participant out of that altogether. And just is like, and it does in a very passive way, assign responsibility to the person who has experienced trauma that they now have this risk that they have to somehow mitigate and carry with them. And, and this idea, especially like what you said with the research, you know, there's definitely very limited research. And I think a lot of it is because if we really understood this, like so many systems would be very quickly dismantled. Uh Let me rephrase. There's part of me that was like, everything would be dismantled if we understood this. And I'm like, I don't know that I have that much confidence in our like white supremacy, you know, cis heteronormative patriarchy and capitalism to be willing to do that. But the hope is there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that the limited research that has come out has definitely shown that it's actually perpetrators that are repeating offenses and are repeatedly harming people and are targeting people, you know, and that it's not about the survivor, you know, that there's not like a quality about the survivor, except that there is a a perpetrator that is targeting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I participated in, um, and and we can talk about this if it uh, is natural and within the flow, but I participated a few years ago in a survivor's group of several people who had all been victimized by the same person, one of my abusers. We all found each other and we're in a conversation. And one of the commonalities that we found was that we had all experienced prior instances of abuse before being involved with this man. And so that was a really interesting connection to find that, you know, there was something about his actions and his abuses that were um, probably subconsciously, largely subconsciously, uh, netting people who had already Mm -hmm. had trauma experiences and were therefore already vulnerable. And um, so, yeah, that was something that we found, I think, a lot of strength in, in recognizing that we were all kind of targeted by this person because perhaps of having had childhood trauma that kind of conditioned us to experience abuse in relationship. Mm, that sounds like that was so powerful. It was, it, it was absolutely incredible. And I, you know, because there are other people whose stories are involved, I won't say too many like details or specifics about it, but it came about because I have a background as a journalist and I love I, journalists. Oh, thank you. <laughs> are, I almost became one. I love them. Like, yeah. They're, they're, they're going to save our world. I love them too. And <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I think I still, 
I still dabble. I would say that I'm still a journalist once every three years or so. Um, <laughs> and a lot of my writing is heavily informed by everything I learned from my journalism mentors and my time working in newspapers. Um, but yeah, I, I, this was in, I think, 2016. Yeah, it was late 2016 or early 2017. I was still processing a lot from this relationship that had ended over a decade prior. And it still just had a lot of trauma echoes for me. And my sort of like almost a last ditch effort because my somatic techniques weren't really working for me, doing therapy about it wasn't really working for me. There was still this kind of gnawing frustration that I had about this particular person and this, these instances. And so I ended up reaching out to someone. I had a memory from that time in my life about a person coming up to myself and the, the person I was dating at that time, who was my abuser, and confronting him at a party and saying, he treats women like shit. And I thought, I'm going to get in touch with that person and I'm going to ask them what that was about. And I'm going to find this person. And through that, I ended up finding many, many people who had been victims of his abuse. And I kind of put out the call, like, do you all want to get together? Do you all want to have an email thread? Do you want to have a conversation? Do you want to talk about this? There were some things that we were trying to do in terms of this person having some accountability because he is a person who has uh, some social clout as a creative individual um, and a low level of fame. And so this was kind of concurrent with the Me Too movement. And mm -hmm. I think we felt like it might be a time for us to express this experience that we'd had. As it turned out, as a group, we mostly just found a lot of um, empowerment in connecting with each other and sharing just how similar our stories actually were was strangely something that I found incredibly liberating because these memories that I had that were like, you know how trauma brain works. There's times mm -hmm. where it's like, was that even real? Did that happen? Was that really that way? And having like five other people be like, he said these exact words to me. We were like, well, he said the same thing to all of us, like the same behavior. And it was really validating to be in connection with those people. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, that sounds so amazing to get to it's, you know, such a group healing process of a lot of release, you know, mm -hmm. of, of that, that tension being held around that responsibility for what happened and, and getting like that fog kind of cleared and lifted. And that's what, what I've been hearing from a lot of survivors and ones that I've had on the podcast is how much we question our experiences and how meaningful it's been to get to check in with people about you know, about that and have them affirm, you know, and this is why it's so important to believe survivors. Um, and I probably will say that in every single episode of mine, um, because that, that affirmation actually is such a key part of a healing process. And for me, I, I, I think that it's a doorway into like true recovery is through being believed in and being able to believe yourself. Yeah. Um, that sounds absolutely. amazing. Yeah, it was, it, it took a lot um, out of me, you know, emotionally, energetically, spiritually, but it also just gave me so much. I still count 
one of the connections that I made in that circle of people as being kind of like, you know, we, we don't talk a whole lot. We're not in constant contact, but this connection that I have with this person feels like one of the most meaningful connections that I've made in my life, which is just so beautiful to kind of find that interlocking sense of stabilizing one another, validating each other, uplifting each other, supporting each other in moving through this process. It was um, an absolutely incredible thing. And, and I, it's something that I kind of, when I think about restorative justice models or abolition-based approaches to confronting these issues in community, one of the things that I think is actually critically important that I kind of would wish for most people if they want it is to have access to other survivors who have experienced the same abuse or the same abuser, uh, Mm -hmm. just to be able to kind of compare notes because that's such an important part of emerging from trauma, I think. You know, we see that too in in family trauma and stuff. A lot of the bonds that can be made where siblings are like, can we talk about this issue about one of our parents or extended family members? And when you talk about it like, oh yes, she would do the same thing to me. That's exactly how I felt. It is something that like really lifts that burden of kind of like secrecy and Mm self-doubt because somebody else is like, no, the same thing happened. Like down to brass tacks, the same thing happened. Yeah. I I mean, I love the idea of weaving that into restorative justice of reconnecting survivors to each other. And especially because that is just, as you said it, like that's one of the, I think, major losses is feeling like total disconnection from all people and all things. Like I know for me, it was definitely, I mean, obviously disconnection from my body and my sense of who I was and the world as it was, I felt like I was like this alien that got transported to a new planet that looked exactly Mm. like this one, but was completely different, you know, and disconnected from people because it was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not the same person anymore. I've been, that person was completely demolished and this is something new and how that loss of connection from other people, I think was the hardest one and was also the most reparative when I found it. And that was, you know, part of why um, that started also me getting very interested in um, doing work with survivors was finding so little resources for group connection or connection to other survivors, let alone like no way to connect with people that had similar experiences, but just that even in this huge city that I'm living in, like there was, there was only one group and it had a two-year waiting list. And when I found one on meetup.com of all places, right? Like it was as though like everything, everything changed for me in that sense of that, that reconnecting um, into, you know, the community to like a siblinghood of people that get and understand each other and are like so ready to help each other. Um, and, and how wonderful that is. And what a, like, what a wonderful intervention that we could offer survivors, you know, that this could be something that our communities could facilitate as part of reparation. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I ponder that as a possible future quite a lot, just because I think one of the great tragedies of rape culture for me 
and kind of circling back to the heavy gifts that I mentioned in that post that you read, um, I think one of the great tragedies for me personally, and I can only speak for myself, but the incidents themselves in my life, the assaults, they, they of course were jarring, traumatic, awful, rending. And I would say that I recovered from the physical side of things far, far before I recovered from what I would describe as like the socio-political side of things, like the new understanding of myself in a different identity category than I had had before. And the feeling of being isolated in my pain and my confusion and my anger and my sense of loss. I think that culturally we have a tendency to excise and hide people who are sick and people who are hurt. And I think that that compounds the experience of trauma in a way that is very, it's hard to imagine another way, but I feel like it's also essential to imagine another way. And one of the things that I've thought about is like, I don't think that these events would have been as troubling for me if I had had a more intact community to assist me afterwards, a community that was functional. I think, you know, when I do this research and I think about history and different justice forms that have existed, one of the things that I've thought about a lot over the past decade or so, um, and this is relevant to me just because I do have mixed ancestry, indigenous to Turtle Island and then also settler colonizers. And one of the things that I've kind of understood from some of the ethnographic research is that uh, rape culture, as we understand it, didn't exist here on Turtle Island pre-colonization. But of course, there were incidents where there was um, confusion or boundaries were overstepped or people were um, harmed in intimate interpersonal encounters. But there were um, community structures in place to assist both people who had had these negative experiences where it was like people you know and there's not really a lot written about this but I have spoken with elders about this who definitely say like oh yeah in this before time people knew what to do when they heard that something like that had happened between people they knew like we go to this person we sing them these songs and we go to this person we bring them this medicine and we work to kind of reintegrate that and that is just something that I live with as sort of a central pillar of my like indigenous futurist ideas around remediating rape culture is like we have to get to the point where collectively we know what to do when we've heard about something like this and we know what to do beyond like okay you need to go to the hospital and you need to go to jail wow I think what was occurring to me as you're saying that you know in in an experience of mine that that is not nearly as beautiful and as hopeful as what you were describing but I had a friend who was an ecologist and she had told me she you know was challenging me on this idea that like, you know, that, that how it's supposed to be is that people who are sick or traumatized are supposed to be, you know, led to the back of the pack so they can get picked off essentially kind of thing. And that that's what was, what I felt was happening. And I, and I mean, 
and in this culture, that's, that is what's happening. But that she was like, you know, actually what we see in, in pack species is that they take their wounded and their sick and even their sad members and they put them in the center mm-hmm. and they line the pack with the stronger ones um, that are more capable of being able to protect. And then those ones stay in the center until they are well enough to then resume their role. And I was like, well, that's so beautiful. And, and part of what feels so beautiful is, is that that's how it's supposed to be like this intention of that, like we're supposed to actually have communities surround us and the shame that we've been taught as survivors or as anybody who has any kind of injury or pain um, or illness or disability is that we're supposed to, we're such a burden. We, we carry the shame of being burdened and, and othered and like put out of sight and this idea that that's, that's what we're supposed to do is just not bother people and not intrude into their space or to their life. And to actually hear that, that the way that actually nature has intended this for all beings was that we were supposed to be centered, hmm. you know, and have love and care and community wrapped around us. And this understanding of, because like being in the center feels actually like being almost the most valued. Yeah. Um, rather than the one that's being cast out of like, you know, you're, you're ruining it for the rest of us. Like, you know, we're, we're going to let you go, you know, as opposed to like, no, actually you're so important. We're going to layer community members around you to keep you safe and keep you well. Um, and how meaningful that was to hear, you know, and that this, this image that you have, or this vision that you have for the future you know, carrying the hope of us kind of returning to those roots of us with as, as kind of like our own creatureness in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that some of what you're describing actually like um, echoes back nicely to my feelings of unease around the word survivor, because describing that, like being pushed to the fringes or like pushed to the back of the pack was definitely an experience that I felt like I had. And I think that we have this narrative that in order to survive, you then must kind of fight your way back into the front or kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, of your own accord, muscle your way through the trauma and pain that you're experiencing when, and that's sort of that Darwinian idea that like only the strong survive, uh, survival of the fittest. And I think that we actually have ample evidence to show that yeah, like I can't remember which uh, anthropologist it was who said this, but, you know, we have this ancient evidence of a, a healed, somebody asked an anthropologist, a famous anthropologist, what the origin of civilization was. And she pointed to fossil evidence of a healed femur bone that somebody wouldn't have survived by themselves, but they have this ancient like Neolithic evidence of a person whose leg was completely broken and was able to heal, which means that their community protected them and they lived to see many more days and experience life, even having had this grievous injury. And what I love about that is, is that like from our, from like the current kind of like white supremacy, capitalistic cultural lens like we assume that like what's going to be shown to us is like the first tools, like the first way of becoming more productive, um, you know, and to be able to create things. And it was actually more of like our, the thing that actually makes us feel like humans, our own humanity being demonstrated as existing 
um, so long ago being the sign of civilization. There's something about that that makes me like so proud of like humanity. <laughs> we yeah. are humans. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel that kind of sense of like welling warmth and pride. And, and I think um, part of what I think of as an alternative to the word survivor, which this is just for me, and I'm a little bit of a workaholic and a little bit probably overly involved sometimes in the um, emotional affairs of others. So as a caveat, but I kind of, I kind of think of myself as um, a nurturer because of this experience uh, or these experiences that I've had rather than a survivor. And I think when I talk about like the heavy gifts, that's some of what that is for me. I came to this realization in a, a complex PTSD support group that I was part of a few years ago, somebody posed the question, like, um, in what ways are you grateful for the trauma that you've been through, you know, and it was like, anybody can answer, you don't have to feel pressure. But if you feel like you want to like, open up into this, let's talk about that. And I really believe, and I believed then and believe now that my experiences have made me a more nurturing and more observant person, especially toward other people who have experienced trauma or who are at risk. Like I have turned into kind of, um, you know, for, for years and years when I lived in Austin, Texas, this big city environment that has quite a party scene, <laughs> people knew that I was a person who was, I always had this um, like kind of prepared strategy for when I saw somebody who seemed like they were too intoxicated to be able to consent. And I had a lot of different approaches to manage that and navigate it and figure things out. Um, and so I had a lot of interactions with very drunk strangers that were just kind of inquiring about their well-being. And I was really kind of putting myself in a role of being part of that like collective of creatures that pulls the wounded or the sick back into the center. Every time I went up to like a drunk woman at a bar who was kind of stumbling and didn't seem like she really had uh, possession of her sort of faculties. And I interacted with her and found out exactly like what was going on, how she was getting home, who she was going with. That was me kind of like making sure that she was in a position where the wolves couldn't pick her off, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I was like pulling her back into the center of the flock. That's amazing. I have this image of, of you being like this incredibly like nurturing, caring superhero. Thank you. With like, like a little superhero mask and cape and like swooping in and being like, Hey, just want to make sure you're all good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I kind of felt like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in many ways, like, it, I think because for me, it's like my little survivor heart is like, just so feel so much love for that kind of act and that figure of this, this sense of being loved in such a way that somebody that I don't even know would voluntarily want to help me out and take care of me and make sure I was safe and okay. And is doing that for others as well. Um, there's something about that that feels super heroic um, in such a beautiful way. Thank you. Yeah, I, I received at one point a, a thank you letter from a young woman's family because I... Um, I was driving home and I noticed her, she was very, very intoxicated and she had passed out on the street in the campus oh. area. 
and it was pretty late and I took it upon myself to interact with her and she ended up having alcohol poisoning and needed to go to the hospital. And so we, you know, kind of facilitated that myself and a couple of other uh, first responders who, you know, it was, it was a very strange feeling because when I saw her, I really wondered like how long she had been there and who had left her there and who had passed by. Um, But Mm -hmm. we ended up getting her to the hospital and then her brother and her parents, ended up writing a letter thanking me for looking after their beloved family member and, you know, kind of expressing their, their thanks to me. And that was really moving and really meaningful just to think about like, yeah, being, you you know, I don't have any way of knowing what would have happened if I didn't stop and assist her, but I felt really great about dedicating some of my time and losing a little bit of sleep to make sure that somebody else didn't have this, um, hugely traumatic experience that could have happened as a result of that experience. Yeah. I mean, it it sounds like you saved her life, you know, and, and I think especially that kind of, um, dark, but very real realization of like how many people walked by this or passed by this, this, this situation and saw it for what it was and didn't do anything. And who left her here? Like, all of that stuff, those, those dark questions, but important ones to ask, because that's, that's the reality and that the odds were not in, in favor of her surviving that night. Like what a beautiful act to provide that. Well, thank you so much for all of your beautiful wisdom on this topic. This has been wonderful. And I'm certain we could definitely continue talking for all the time. Yeah, um, <laughs> about this. And I so want to build this beautiful world where we can have communities that survivors just get linked into each other. And so you definitely have a partner with that when, when, and if we, we start moving, well, not if, when, when we start moving that direction for sure. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. This has really been quite meaningful and I appreciate just being, being able to speak with you. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.